When we started looking at the book of Revelation, we said this book is here to unveil things that are unseen but which are very, very real. It's here to take us behind the scenes, behind the scenes of human history and to give us a deeper insight into what's going on in this world and in the heavens. I mention that again this morning because we're coming to a section of the book that takes us behind the scenes of the difficulties and sufferings of the church. Last week those difficulties and sufferings were described for us in chapter 11. We saw there that the church is secure in God's care. It has a glorious, eternal future ahead. And at the same time, The church often faces hostility. It is often attacked and trampled in this world. That was chapter 11. But now chapters 12 and 13 are going to give us a deeper understanding of the church's difficulties and sufferings. These chapters pull back the curtain on what we saw in chapter 11. They're going to show us some of the spiritual realities that lie behind what happens to the church. And this morning we're going to focus on chapter 12. And the focus of this chapter is the dragon. If you haven't found that passage yet, it's on page 1241, or page in the large print, uh, page 1925. Revelation 12, and we'll begin by reading this chapter. John says, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then, Another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient snake called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. 
For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time, out of the snake's reach. Then from his mouth, the snake spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. This is God's word. And this chapter deals with two things. The dragon's defeat and the dragon's rage. First of all, in verses 1 to 11, the dragon's defeat. This chapter is mainly about the dragon, but he's not the first character who's introduced to us. Before he appears, we're introduced to a woman. This is what John sees in his vision in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. Who is this? Who does the woman represent in this vision? Well, back in the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, we're told that Jacob's son Joseph had a dream. In that dream, Jacob and his wife and Jacob's twelve sons were pictured as the sun and moon and twelve stars. Jacob was Abraham's son. God had promised to make Abraham into a great nation. And at that time, Jacob's family was the foundation of that nation, descended from Abraham through Isaac. From that family, which was little at the time, would come eventually the nation of Israel, God's Old Testament people. So this woman represents God's faithful people before Christ came. But that's not all she represents. Because as Revelation 12 goes on, we're also told she represents God's people after the coming of Christ. All those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. So this woman also represents the church of Jesus Christ. She is the whole community of God's people throughout history the Old Testament and New Testament people of God. And as she appears in verse 1, she is glorious. 
seen, whatever she might look like to the human eye, seen from heaven's perspective, she is impressive. Loved by God and sharing in the glory of God. But, the fact that God's people are glorious does not mean this life is pain-free for them. In verse 2, the woman is described as pregnant and crying out in pain as she's about to give birth. What is this describing? Well, what was the great expectation of God's Old Testament people? It was the Messiah. And that expectation started right back in the Garden of Eden. Right after the serpent tempted Eve and sin caused the man and woman to be cut off from God. In the midst of that horrible human failure, God made a promise. He promised that one day, one of the woman's offspring would crush the serpent's head. That promise began the expectation of God's Messiah. And from then on, God's people were like an expectant mother, awaiting the birth of their champion. The one who would crush the power of Satan and sin and death. And that expectation grew as God made more promises to Abraham, then much later to David, of one who would rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Then through the Old Testament prophets, the expectation grew. Especially Isaiah. Through Isaiah, God promised the birth of one called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And always it was clear, this Messiah, Emmanuel, would come from Israel. And Israel's pregnancy hurt. Think what Israel went through. Generations of slavery in Egypt. Harsh oppression. And then much later, exile in Assyria and Babylon. And think too, not just of the physical suffering, but also the unfulfilled expectation. That just added to the agony. Is this child ever going to arrive? Is this painful pregnancy going to last forever? But now, as John watches in this vision, the pregnancy is almost over. It's time for the child to be delivered. But as the contractions start, look who arrives in the delivery suite in verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. There's absolutely no doubt who this is. Down in verse 9, he's identified for us as that ancient snake called the devil or Satan. Notice how he's introduced first in verse 3. The woman, remember, had a crown. The dragon 
has seven on his seven heads. And he has ten horns. Together with his red color, that is a picture of murderous and oppressive power and authority. And as John watches, the dragon shows his power. His tail sweeps a third of the stars out of the sky and flings them to the earth. Back in chapter 8, that same language was used of God, hurling down judgment on the earth. This is Satan showing his own impressive power. Then he turns his attention to the woman. Why? Well, there's no doubt where to understand the dragon is the same being who led Adam and Eve into sin back in Genesis 3. We've already noticed verse 9 calls him that ancient snake. From then on, the text alternates between calling him the dragon and calling him the snake. So Satan was in Eden. He heard God's promise that day. This isn't over. One day, Satan, you will be crushed by a descendant of Eve. A man will break your power and undo your work. So after Eden, what do you think Satan focused on? The child. The Messiah. From the day God made the promise, Satan's obsession was to destroy God's Messiah. He did his level best to destroy Israel herself. To obliterate the woman before the Messiah could come from her. Ultimately, he failed in that attempt. He got pretty close a few times, but he failed. Israel limped on as a nation until at last Emmanuel came to Bethlehem. The one destined to rule the nations with an iron scepter. And as John watches, Satan arrives on the scene. He's going to crush this child before the child crushes him. In the middle of verse 4, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. He's going to grab this baby from between the woman's legs and eat it. That's the picture. And Satan put all he had into it. The four Gospels tell us how this picture and the vision worked out in reality. Matthew tells us how Satan worked through Herod around the time of Jesus' birth. When Herod heard rumors of the Messiah being born, he ordered all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity killed. And just to be sure, the order was all the boys two years old and under. But God protected his Messiah. His parents made it to Egypt and they stayed there until Herod was dead. Satan tried again and again throughout Jesus' life. He didn't give up. And finally things came together for him. Through the conspiracy of Judas and the Jewish leaders and through Pilate's weakness, Satan got his hands on the Messiah. 
He watched the Messiah die on a cross. But verse 5 tells us, before Satan's party could get started, the Messiah was snatched from his grasp. Jesus rose from the grave and he ascended to heaven to sit on the throne forever safe from Satan's attacks. One result of the resurrection is that Satan's greatest ambition has been frustrated. The cross was Satan's big power play to defeat the Almighty. But he failed. And the opportunity will never come again for him. Verse 6 mentions what happened to the woman after Christ returned to heaven. That will be developed later on in the chapter, so we're going to hold it over until then. The point for us to get here is that Satan's chance has come and gone. Today, he cannot stop God's plans being fulfilled. You and I do not live in a world where things may or may not go God's way. Satan was defeated at the cross. He struck the Messiah, as Genesis promised he would, but he could not devour the Messiah. And so he cannot stop the purposes of God. 2 Corinthians says, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. We've seen that already in Revelation in chapter 5. The risen Christ took the scroll containing God's purposes for history and he opened the seals. So don't ever think this battle between good and evil is some finely balanced thing. There's not even a hint of balance. Christ is risen and the devil is defeated. We'll see later that he fights on. Yes, he does. But he's like a team playing out their games after they're already relegated. They can throw their weight around. They can play with fury. But their ambition cannot be fulfilled. So it is with Satan. Then look at verse 7. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient snake called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Michael is named repeatedly in the Bible as one of the commanders of the Lord's angelic army. Possibly even the commander. If you want to read the background to that, have a look later at Daniel chapters 10 and 12. And look at Jude in the New Testament. In Daniel, Michael is referred to as the great prince who protects God's people. Back in Revelation chapter 1, we came across the concept that there are angels assigned to God's people. 
I said back then, the Bible doesn't give us lots of information about angels, but it assures us angels are real. And they are active in God's service. Here, Michael and his angels hurl the devil and his angels to earth. And that raises two questions. When did this happen? And what does it mean? Well, the first thing to notice is that the NIV is not as helpful as it could be at this point. In the NIV, verse 7 begins, Then war broke out in heaven. But literally the text reads, And there was war in heaven. In other words, there's nothing in the text to say this happens after what we have just been looking at. In fact, there are good reasons to think verse 7 happened at the same time as what we've just looked at. Luke's Gospel tells us that during Jesus' ministry on earth, he sent his disciples out preaching. And they came back to him very excited. They said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And this was Jesus' reply. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's in Luke chapter 10. Jesus seems to be indicating that Satan's defeat in heaven happened during the time of Jesus' work on earth. Work that climaxed in the cross. So, while Satan's ambition was being frustrated on earth, he was at the same time losing his position in heaven. And the two are connected. Jesus, Satan lost his place in heaven because his ambition was frustrated on earth. Christ's life, death and resurrection resulted in Satan being thrown down. It wasn't because of some cage fight between the good and bad angels. It was a consequence of Christ's victory on the cross. And we might say, okay, but what was Satan doing in heaven in the first place? Look at verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Back in chapter 5, we learned that after Jesus' death and resurrection, something changed in heaven. A new song began to be sung to the Lamb who was slain. That song could not be sung before Jesus had died and risen. Now we learn that at the same time, something else changed in heaven. Satan's greatest power was taken away. According to verse 10, before Jesus died and rose, Satan had power to accuse God's people in God's presence day and night. He was able to stand in God's presence, point to the Old Testament believers around God's throne and say, 
you have no right to be here. You are sinners and you deserve God's wrath. And Satan could say, I don't care how many animal sacrifices you offered when you were alive, your sin hasn't been paid for. You ought to be paying for it by suffering God's wrath. And Satan could add, if the Almighty lets your debt go unpaid, then he is corrupt. He is unjust. Did Satan have a point with those accusations? According to the New Testament, yes, he did. Romans chapter 3 tells us, until Christ came, God let the sins committed beforehand go unpunished. And that left a question mark over God's righteousness. If those sins remained unpunished, God would be unrighteous. He would be acting like sin didn't matter. And so, until Christ came, Satan had access to God's presence and he had the power to accuse. If you want to see examples of that, look later at Job chapters 1 and 2 and Zechariah chapter 3 in the Old Testament. But, When Jesus bowed his head on the cross and said, it is finished, then Satan's greatest power was taken away. Romans 3 says, God demonstrated his righteousness by punishing his son in the place of sinners. That opened a way for sinners to stand in his presence free from accusation. God justifies those who trust in Christ. He justifies those who trust in Christ after the cross, like us. And he justifies those Old Testament believers who were looking forward to the cross. Who offered up their lambs on the altar, trusting that one day God would send a greater lamb whose death really would take away their sin. So what does it mean to say Satan lost his place in heaven? It means that after Jesus' death and resurrection, God said to Satan, the price has been paid. My sinless son died as the substitute for these people. They belong in my presence. And so, you don't, Satan. Your accusations have no power and they have no place anymore. At that point, Michael and his angels removed Satan from God's presence. Does that mean Satan retired? Did he roll over and die? No. The rest of chapter 12 describes the dragon's rage. It shows that because his ambition to destroy the Messiah has been frustrated, and because he's lost his power to accuse in heaven, now Satan pours his fury on the Messiah's people. 
Verse 12. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell on them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time out of the snake's reach. As Christians, we long for Christ's return. For us, that day will mean perfect freedom. It will mean the start of eternal glory. But Satan doesn't long for that day. For him, it will mean the end. That will be described later on in the book. But the point being made here in verse 12 is that expectation of Christ's return is what drives Satan on. He knows he's lost the war. He lost the war at Easter. But that only motivates him to cause as much evil and destruction as he can before time runs out for him. And so in verse 13 we have this description of how he goes after the woman who represents the church. But notice how the woman is protected in verse 14. She's given eagle's wings so she can fly to the wilderness and be taken care of. What does that mean? Well, the wilderness is a hard place. It's a place of evil and testing. It's not the promised land. But in the history of God's people, the wilderness was also the place where God met with his people. He traveled with them and he strengthened them in the wilderness. Think about the exodus from Egypt. After the Israelites crossed over the Red Sea, God met them in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. And at that point he said to them, I carried you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Those are his words in Exodus 19. And then God fed his people with manna in the wilderness. He led them to springs of water in the wilderness. It was a harsh and hostile place. But it was also the place where God went with them and took care of them. Here Revelation 12 tells us the experience of Old Testament Israel is also the pattern for the church. You and I might never set foot in a literal wilderness. But if we commit ourselves to Christ, our life in this world is going to have elements of this. Where we feel Satan's fury. We feel the hostility to some degree of this world that is allied with Satan. But even in the midst of that, we will be carried We will be taken care of by God.
Last week we came across a specific time period that keeps appearing in Revelation. Sometimes it appears as 42 months. Sometimes it's referred to as 1,260 days. And sometimes it's three and a half years. It's all the same thing. We said it referred to the time where the church may be trampled in terms of persecution. But at the same time, the church is secure. The church cannot lose the things that truly matter. God's mercy and love. A place in God's presence in the new heaven and earth. Here in chapter 12, the time period comes up again. Verse 6 told us the woman will be taken care of in the wilderness for 1,260 days. Here in verse 14, the same time period is referred to as time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. A year plus two years plus half a year. During that time, the dragon pursues the woman. And at the same time, we're told, she is taken care of out of his reach. Does that mean Satan never touches the church? No, our bodies, our finances, maybe our prospects in this life, they may suffer because we belong to Christ. But our souls are out of Satan's reach. In fact, he only goes after our bodies because he knows he can't touch our souls. That battle has been lost. It was lost when Jesus bought us at the cross. And so our bodies and our stuff are all Satan has left to go after. What about this river that comes in verse 15, trying to sweep the woman away? Well, the key is that it comes from the dragon's mouth. We've seen in these apocalyptic visions, when something comes from a person's mouth, it symbolizes the power of their word. In chapters 1 and 2, Jesus was described as having a sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, showing that his word rules. It has power to condemn or to acquit. Last week we saw fire coming from the mouths of the two witnesses, showing that their gospel word has power. Here, the river from the dragon's mouth shows his efforts to tempt and deceive and discourage. He can't accuse us in God's presence anymore. God won't listen to his accusations. But Satan will still come to us with his accusations. You're pathetic. How could God accept you? You don't deserve to be in his family. You don't belong. Just give this up. You're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. How do you and I avoid being swept away by those accusations? And by the devil's lies and temptations. Because we know from our experience they just keep on coming. 
The text shows us that. In verse 16, the earth swallows up the river from the dragon's mouth, but verse 17 assures us he never gives up. When he fails in one attempt, he just circles around looking for other angles of attack. So how do we avoid being swept away by the river of his deceit and discouragement? Not just once, but again and again. How do we triumph over the raging dragon? So the answer to that, look back up to verse 11. Speaking of God's people, John says, They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. We triumph over Satan by remembering Jesus has already triumphed at the cross. Decisively. You and I don't have to defeat Satan. Jesus has already done it. We triumph by relying on what Jesus has done. By putting all our hope and confidence not in ourselves, but in the blood of the Lamb. When Satan accuses us, we respond by saying, you're right. I don't deserve God's love and mercy. But he paid the price to buy me for himself. And I know, Satan, you're only bringing your accusations to me because my Father in heaven won't listen to you. He says, I belong because of Jesus. So Satan, why should I keep listening to your accusations when God Almighty refuses to listen to them? How can Satan ever drive us to despair when our hope is not in ourselves but in the risen Christ? And the church triumphs over Satan in this world not by fighting for our rights with court cases or in Parliament. No, the church triumphs by the word of her testimony. By proclaiming the news of the Lamb's triumph. That's what drives Satan back in this world. And we triumph by not loving our lives so much as to shrink from death. You and I may not die for our faith in Christ, the way believers in Iraq and Syria are dying. We may have to see some of our ambitions die for popularity or acceptance in certain circles, but we may not be physically put to death, that's true. And yet, the point is, what power can Satan have over us if we live with a willingness to die? If we're ready to be faithful to Christ in a thousand little deaths and even to the point of physical death. What can Satan do with men and women like that? 
He can't deprive us of God's love. He can't cut off our eternal hope. The worst he can do is kill us for our allegiance to Christ. But if we are willing to die, Satan becomes toothless. His biggest threat is taken away. His rage comes to nothing. This week, you and I may feel the heat of Satan's rage in some way. We might hear him whispering his accusations in our ear, tempting us to sin or to despair, trying to seduce us with false promises, trying to sweep us away in his river of lies. But God wants us to know Satan is defeated. He was defeated decisively by the blood of the Lamb. And Satan goes on being defeated as you and I rely on the blood of the Lamb. As we share the good news of the Lamb. And as we commit to following the Lamb even to death. In a moment, we're going to sing together. And the song we're going to sing says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within,